Section 18 of The Wounded Name by D. K. Broster. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Eileen. Chapter 6, Part 5. 9. They took a mag down the little slope from the woodcutter's hut. He went unresisting. He was in the snare, the snare of his own devising. He, the fowler. And now he began to be sure that there was only one way out of it, and this wood was to see that way taken. The clearing was some hundred yards long and thirty wide. The beech trees in all their new glory stood round it, dazzlingly green against the more reluctant oaks. And there were windflowers scattered under them like snowflakes. In one place, half seen, a pond of bluebells, and at the farther end a may-tree, robed as a bride. Magloire had preceded the little procession, and was now standing near a large, solitary beach at the nearer end of the glade. When they came up, he pointed to it in silence. The Vicomte de la Roche de Gris, descendant of crusaders, flushed deeply. "'I give you my word of honour not to stir from this spot,' he said in a low voice. The Chouan shook his head. Oh, you might be tempted, he replied curtly. And if, later on. Hi, Eloy, fetch a rope. And Aymar set his teeth hard as his guards, after a second or two's hesitation, pressed him back against the smooth grey trunk, rock-like in its solidity. Even before the rope was brought, someone produced a piece of rough cord, not very thick, and extending his arms behind him part of the way round the great tree, they fastened the cord to either wrist. By that device alone he was effectually a prisoner, and the biting shame of it surged over him in a tide of wrath and defiance. Guilaine, Quatsaliou, Le Marsag, Gloinec, he called out suddenly. Are you going to stand by and see this done? A huge hand came across his mouth, forcing his head back against the tree trunk. We are all going to see justice done, Monsieur le Vicomte, said Magloire, the hand's owner. If it has to be done on you, so much the worse for you. But done it will be. And as he removed his hand from the disgusted lips, the rope, which had meanwhile arrived, was passed across Loiseleur's shoulders and tightened. And when it was knotted firmly across his shoulders, across the middle of his body, and just above his knees, he could not stir a quarter of an inch. And that will do, said Magloire. Now Monsieur de la Rochetterie can answer our questions. Aymar's lips curled. Do you imagine for a moment that I shall do so after this? he demanded. You would be wise, said Hervé Le Bihan somberly. We have a right to ask. He came closer. Monsieur de la Rochetterie, why did you send Monsieur de Fresne's letter to Colonel Richard? Aymar took no notice of Hervé, but turning his head, the only part of his body which remained now at his own disposal, he looked steadily at the arch-rebel who had broken his dominion, subjected him to an undreamt-of humiliation, and was no doubt contemplating the last supreme outrage, and said, as coldly as if he were judge, not victim. My reason was given to Monsieur de Fresne. When it was offered to you, 
you refuse to hear it. It is a farce to ask me for it now, and you know it. At that, as though it were an appeal to him, Defresne sprang up from the log at some distance on which he had been sitting, his head in his hands, during the carrying out of the indignity which he was powerless to prevent. Loiselag is right, he cried, coming into the center of the clearing. He's given me his reason. He's ready to give it to a court of inquiry, the only tribunal which has the right to demand it. Magloire shook his head. We want no courts of inquiry. We are judges here. Let us have the reason. Defresnet looked appealingly at the beech tree. You can tell them, if you like, said its captive indifferently. And Defresnet had to bring out, as the only hope of saving his leader, the justification of the latter's conduct, which had been so far from satisfying him a short time ago. He did his best with it. When he had finished, there was silence for a moment. Amag, in a curiously detached way, was trying to consider what he should say if he heard that explanation for the first time. He was also becoming aware of the extreme discomfort, not to say pain, caused by the position of his strained arm and shoulder. And the discomfort was not likely to grow less. Now, Monsieur de Fresne, said Magloire, and tell us honestly, as you are a gentleman, what you thought of that explanation of Monsieur de la Cocheterie's? De Fresne had not expected this, evidently. After a second or two's unhappy pause, he said, looking on the ground, Everybody is liable to make mistakes of judgment. I... Give us a direct answer, please, interposed Magloire. Tell the truth, De Fresne, said Aymar suddenly. It is always best. The elder man glanced at the sardonic and defiant face with a lock of rust-colored hair, disordered in the struggle, fallen across the brow, and looked away. I, I did not think it altogether satisfactory, he said unwillingly, and so I advised Monsieur de la Rochetterie to give up his sword, which you see he has done, and to submit himself to a court of war. A growl broke out. Oh, they do not like that term, my friend, observed Aymar, and they prefer private murder. Oh, it was not murder, then, when you sent five hundred men to the death you had prepared for them, asked the president of this tribunal, and Aymar did not answer him. For the last time, possibly, the vain and scorching tide of regret rose up about him and to the very throat. But he was paying now. He could hardly pay more bitterly if they did proceed to murder him. Murder him? No, surely. Surely it could not be that he, Aymar de la Rochetterie, Loiselave, was going to end like this, here and now. It was unthinkable. He came back to hear de Fresne saying, What I believe is that Monsieur de la Rochetterie had some other reason for his action, which he did not see fit to reveal to me. And it must have been a good reason, worthy of Loiselard, of the leader who held the Moulin Brûlé. And then his agitation got the better of him. Oh, for God's sake, untie him. Oh, you can't realize what you're doing. You, his own men. Our leader, Loiselard, exists no longer, said Magloire Le Bihan. If Monsieur de la Rochetterie has any further explanation, as you suggest, 
He had better give it to us at once. May I speak to him? asked Defresne suddenly. If you promise not to touch the ropes, answered Magloire. I promise, said Defresne. He came up to the tree, whiter than Aymar himself. La Rochetterie, aren't you going to try to save yourself? The bargain, what was it? You must reveal it now. Aymar looked at him gravely. Mon ami, I cannot. Defresne smote his empty hands together. Oh, tell them something. I cannot do anything more. It rests with you alone now. Loiselard shook his head. What I should tell them would do me no good in their eyes, though it was not dishonorable. And even if it would save me, I would not tell them now. No, leave me to my fate, de Fresne, but try to get them to be quick about it. You should never have shown them the letter, said his lieutenant, tears in his eyes. I would rather have let them think that I was the blame. If only I had not come back. If only I had not brought the letter. Oh, my God, to see you there like that. It is too dreadful. No, you are not to blame, replied Aymar steadily, though de Fresne's words made the ropes seem tighter. You acted as an honest man in coming back to me with the letter. Oh, I can't shake hands with you now. I would like you to keep my sword, if you will. De Fresne looked hard at him, nodded, dashed the back of his hand over his eyes, and, turning away without another word, carried his agitation and, evidently, his arguments into the midst of the discussion which was going forward, with obvious differences of opinion and with frequent glances towards the beech tree. Aymar suddenly felt that he had been there a long time. The sun was hot, his head was aching, and he would have given anything, almost, in the world. And though everything was ceasing to have value for him now, if he could have had his arms unbound. And now Arvé and one or two others were coming to him again, Magloire remaining at a distance. Monsieur le Vicomte, said the former, you've heard what Monsieur de Fresne has said. He has acknowledged that he did not find your explanation of your conduct satisfactory. De Fresne suddenly looked round, anguish on his face. He says that you gave up your sword and were going before a court of war. But we, what is left of us after the trap you arranged for us at Pont Rousse, consider that we have a better right to try you than a lot of gentry of whom we have never heard. And you still refuse to say anything in your own defense. I do, most emphatically, returned Aymar. I acknowledge no right of the kind. You have defied my authority, you have outraged my person, and even if you intend to kill me in cold blood, I shall not plead to you. You need not therefore waste time. So they went away, rather hesitatingly, it was true, and seemed to enter into fresh discussions from which de Fresne's voice emerged from time to time. He appeared to be threatening them. Aymar had an impression that they were drawing lots, but on the whole he felt curiously little interest in their deliberations. He found the delicate little windflowers at his feet more interesting. What a pity that they had been so trampled. 
more and more the peculiar effect of strain and lack of sleep was beginning to make itself felt, and that sensation of having a hollow in one's brain, of being maimed of one's faculties. But it did not matter now. And though it had mattered up there by the hut before his control of the mutineers had slipped from him. Yes, he had made a mess of that. He ought to have shot Magloire at once. But I did not seem able to make up my mind, he murmured, as if he were speaking to someone near. And besides, everything was my fault. The windflowers looked up at him then, with their shy compassion. He lifted his head and gazed down the clearing at the shifting groups in their gay embroidered jackets, blue and yellow and white. They seemed a little blurred. Did the strange feeling which was growing on him betoken faintness? Whatever they did to him, it would be intolerable to faint first, and they would think he was afraid. Could he bring himself, rather than risk that, to ask to have his arms, only his arms, untied? Not yet. Oh, how slow they were. Suddenly, out of nowhere, came a vision of a boy waiting for an answer to a letter. The answer that, now, she would never receive, and that he would never write. Walking, perhaps, on the terrace under his window, with the dog Sagassin beside her, thinking of those long years of patience and how they had ended at last. How they had ended! and they were ending like this. For a second or two, the young man was hard put to it to keep his composure. He threw his head back against the great pillow behind him, the heart in him beating with fury and longing and shame. Still, under his tight shut lids, he could see her, a grave, but with a little smile round her beautiful mouth, while he, who, holding her tenderly, should only four nights ago, have bent to kiss it, had his arms stretched out behind him and was fastened himself immovably to a tree in the sight of all his men. Another wave of faintness crept towards him. And then the dullness in his ears was suddenly rent. Two men, shouting and gesticulating, were running through the undergrowth towards the central group, and, as he heard what they were crying out, Amag understood in a moment what had happened. They were his outposts, and the Bonapartists were advancing on the Bois de Fauvet. The news fell like a bombshell into the unprepared Chouin. A few ran bewildered among the trees, seeking cover. The majority were snatching up their muskets, but with panic in every movement. De Fresne and Magloire, however, had not lost their heads, the former was obviously trying to marshal the men into some kind of order to get them away. The tension held Aymar more painfully than his bonds. For there was, surely there was, a chance that he might be forgotten in the confusion. De Fresne had never once looked in his direction, with a drawn sword in his hand, which must be his. He was shepherding the men hastily out of the clearing, pointing the way, shouting encouragements. And Magloire, still farther away, was doing the same. And the men were obeying, and they were filing out. Oh, it was not going to end like this, after all. Was it true, indeed, or a dream, 
and that Defresne had actually turned back and was running stealthily up the side of the clearing under the trees, the bare blade in his hand. How he could soon free him with that. Oh, God, if only nobody turned and saw. A vain hope. Defresne was only a few yards off when Magloire came running into the clearing again. No, no, that will not do, he shouted, dropped to one knee in the middle and took a quick, steady aim at the beech tree's target. And there was a flash, a report, and a violent blow as if someone had struck him in the left shoulder. Amar gasped a moment with a shock, and then he saw Defresne standing with a sword half-lifted. Oh, for God's sake, put it through me and finish this, he called out to him with entreaty in his voice and set his teeth. But the elder man, with an oath, sprang for the side of the tree. Before he got there, Magloire, still kneeling, fired his second barrel, but this time the bullet missed by an inch, whizzing by Amar's ear into the trunk beside him. Oh, go back, you'll be hit, shouted Loiseleur, but de Fresne had already been seized by two Epervilliers, who had hurled themselves on him, and Aymar saw that, farther down the clearing, another man had his musket at the level. Oh, if only it might be through the heart this time, and this purgatory be ended. But with the report came a hot and searing sensation in the right side, and the young man, biting his lips, writhed mutely for a second. And the next... The whole scene began to swim away from him. Yet he heard, or thought he heard, a sort of long breath of horror or satisfied vengeance run about the place, and a voice that might have been Magloire's cry something about Pont au Rocher. His head fell forward on his breast. So he never saw how de Fresne, cursing wildly, freed himself from his assailants and turned to the urgent business of leadership since the tragedy was now played out. But the two men who had seized him as they left the wood turned and fired at the motionless figure against the tree. One shot sped over the bowed head into the trunk of the beech, and the other ploughed straight across Loiseleur's breast, cutting the ribbon of his cross of Saint-Louis as neatly as though it had been done on purpose and sending the cross itself spinning to his feet but he never moved. And, after a little, the clearing, recently so clamorous with emotion, was quiet again, and a bird, hopping cautiously out on a twig of the beech tree, looked down with one round, bright eye on the strange fruitage it bore. And probably it had never before seen a man stand so still. 10. The bird had flown away when Aymar came out of that vague place of forgetfulness to realities. As he lifted his head, he wondered dizzily why he could not move, then why someone was pressing a knife across his breast. The rest was coming back, and that he could not remember. He looked down and saw that a furrow had been cut clean across his uniform, just below the rope, and not of his uniform only, and his cross of Saint-Louis lay among the trampled windflowers. It all came back, too clearly. They had left him here, to die, alone, in pain, in ignominy, 
and the uttermost shame that could befall a soldier, his own men. And here, lashed immovably to this hateful tree, sick with the constraint of his position as much as with the pain of his wounds, and bleeding fast from all of them, but unable to lift a finger to staunch them, here, on his feet, looking down the clearing at the drift of hawthorn blossom, he would remain till he died. No, not while there was his scarcely broken strength still in him. The determination to be free suddenly possessed him like fire, and now that only the tall trees watched him, he began to struggle like a trapped animal. But even with the most furious efforts, he could hardly move his body at all, for, as he soon found, he was too tightly pinned above the knees. And even had the ropes not held him so relentlessly, he could not, try as he would, get his arms free of the separate cord which held them back, almost agonizingly, by this time, against the great trunk behind him. Each of his efforts only tightened its grip on his lacerated wrists, for they were raw and bleeding before he desisted from tugging. And all the while a cuckoo mocked him with its monotonous and mechanical cry, which held no hint now of the meanings of spring, but only a horrible mirth. You are fast, you are fast, you can't get away. Yes, this was going to be the end, his end, after all. Nor was it plainly very far off. The only effect of Amak's struggles had been greatly to increase the hemorrhage. The warm stream coursing down his body from his side had not only soaked by this time through his uniform, but was appearing as a spreading stain on his white buckskin breeches. He looked down at it, and at the other stains, too. It was hard to believe that he, young and strong as he was, or had been half an hour ago, was about to die merely from that, the ebb which any charitable hand could have arrested, which his own might possibly have staunched, if they had not been so simply but effectually fettered. Yet that was what was going to happen, unless someone came in time. Oh, but who could come except the Bonapartists? And to be found by them would be intolerable, for his situation admitted of one explanation only. All the countryside knew of his defeat. It would be almost better to die than that. Even by this death, lonely and dishonored as it was, and the death without alleviation of any kind, which, for a voice sake, he had brought upon himself, and in vain. For the first time a groan broke from him, only to be swallowed up in the chorus of birdsong with which the green deserted wood was now ringing. He made a last effort to wrench himself free. Useless, useless. But if only he might have seen Avoy to explain before he died. What would she hear afterwards? She would have all the rest of her life for the evidences of his guilt to penetrate the unbelief with which he knew quite well that she would meet them at first. And gradually, as the truth leaked out, she would be forced to believe him guilty in that sense in which he never had been guilty, since he had suffered a disgraceful penalty for an act of rashness to which that merciful term would never be applied now. Oh, if only he had carried out his intention of this morning, 
and made an end to himself before the wild hyacinths became a blur of pain to the sight and the trees in their spring bravery merely so many stakes to be tied to. He could have lain dead with less disgrace, hidden by the bluebells until they died. Amak was growing much weaker. He knew it. The sunlight no longer seemed warm, and his head was beginning to swim. Only one conscious desire was left soon, and to be loosed, and to be able to lie down on the beech leaves at his feet, and for the pain in his mangled wrists seemed worse than any of his wounds, and his position was nakedly in torture. And he was so desperately thirsty. But oblivion was advancing with faster strides now, for the anemones, the laughing may-tree, the bright beaches at which he was staring, were beginning to vanish and reappear again, and every breath was becoming more difficult to draw. Then pain went, and he began to have the oddest fancies. He was part of the beech tree from which he could not stir. He was the beech tree. He had never been anything else. Once there had been a young man named Aimag de la Rochetterie who had run and ridden and fought and moved about freely. But he had stood here always, year in, year out, bare in the frosts of winter, clothed with green as now in spring, a splendid and vigorous tree. But if that were so, how was it that Aimag de la Rochetterie was gasping so for breath, as he could hear, and that his head swam so violently, and that from the blue sky which showed through the brilliant leaves above him, strange whirling specks like black snow were falling. How odd that was in spring! Oh, but was it spring, when it felt so bitterly cold? As his failing senses suggested the question, the spreading bough above him seemed suddenly to swoop down on him. Then the great tree which would not let him go began itself to sink with him into a cold, suffocating darkness. Amak gave a couple of deep gasps, and his head fell forward for the second time, not to be lifted again. He had looked his last on the Bois de Fauvette. It was thus that the Bonapartists found him, some three quarters of an hour later. Save that, with the oncoming of such profound unconsciousness, the deadly hemorrhage had ceased. Only curiosity, no thought that, from his appearance, and there was a glimmer of life left in him, led them to cut him down. But of their surprise, their gratification, when, on searching him, they found from his papers who he was, their discovery of the cipher notes, their rough attempts at surgery, and his subsequent odyssey in the cart, Amar knew nothing whatever. Fate showed him some scrap of mercy after all. End of section 18